electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank Holland in for Scott Wapner. Stocks, they're coming off a third straight week of gains. The S&P crossing a key level. Are we in a new bull market or is it just too early to call the bottom? We're going to debate that. And with the historic inflation reduction bill passed in the Senate will mean for buybacks and shareholders. We are joined by our our investment committee today. Steve Weiss, Kevin O'Leary, Joe Terranova, and right here with me on set, Liz Young. But first, Let's get a check on the markets. The major averages edging higher again. The Nasdaq on its longest winning streak since April, getting pushed higher by Tesla, benefiting from that Inflation Reduction Act. Right now, looking at the 10-year note, yield right now at 2.777, three sevens. That could be lucky for somebody somewhere. Uh, Right now, the Dow up more than 100 points. Let's just get right into it. Liz, you're right here with me. What do you think? Are we in a bull market? Are we in a bear rally? What are we doing right now? I think that valuations at this point are a little stretched given that nothing has really changed that much. And we've seen over the last few weeks a lot of multiple expansion. That's on the heels of all the multiple compression that we had in the first half of this year. But the reality of this situation is after seeing those jobs numbers from Friday, Fed is not stopping anytime soon. And valuations are above where they normally are when inflation is at these levels. So I think because the second half of the year is still going to see us fighting inflation, trying to call a top in inflation, and we would need to see it to come down very, very quickly in order to be satisfied. But I do think that we probably have to get valuations back to a little bit more of a reasonable level in the month of August. All right, Weiss, over to you. I mean, you're generally bearish. Are you still bearish right now after what we've been seeing for the last few weeks? And honestly, the market's responding to some somewhat disappointing earnings and kind of just shrugging them off. Yeah, look, uh, you know, I, I did put on some exposure, meaningful exposure, and, and caught some of the rally. But my base case is the same, which is we get in September and October, and you really start to see the impact of the tightening, which I don't believe we've seen yet. It'll be a different story in the economy. It'll be a different story in the markets. So I agree with Liz. You've seen multiple expansion because earnings have been coming down, although they did better than was what was expected. But that is always a case. I don't think there's an earnings period where they did worse than expected. So I would say at this point that, you know, we're still OK here for now, but it's only logical to assume that nothing goes up forever, particularly in a Fed tightening. So which is what we're seeing. So so look, I'll start taking off some exposure. Uh, I put stops in some of the trades. Maybe I get stopped out as they come down. But to me, this is a rally in that the general trend in the market is lower. However, I don't think we break the lows that we recently saw. I think we'll revisit them, but perhaps I said not for a few weeks. You know, why? let me push back for a second. I mean, you say nothing goes up forever. Doesn't that include inflation? I mean, a lot of people think that CPI will be slightly lower. We may have hit peak inflation. Isn't that going to just basically be a relief valve for the markets and give them the ability to rise as we go forward for the second half of the year? 
No, because the Fed is still is still going forward. So if inflation come, everybody points to commodity prices, prices have gotten crushed. They're down 35 percent. So take your inflation down 35 percent. You're still at three to four times what trend inflation should be that the Fed wants. So, yeah, so that's why the market's moved up because commodity prices have come down right. and because maybe Fed, because Powell maybe misspoke in his press conference. But the fact is, the Fed is determined to put a lid on inflation, and they're going to, and that's going to impact the economy. Plus, you're going to see, I think, you know, offsetting that slightly is an acceleration of buybacks before the penalty on buybacks takes effect next year. And by the way, I don't think it'll be a ton. You know, 1%, who cares? 2%, who cares? But, um, but look, so the market's okay now. Inflation's coming down, just not enough, not fast enough. Yeah, we're going to touch on buybacks in just a second. Joe, I want to go over to you. Where are you at right now? I mean, is this rally for real? Well, Frank, and first of all, good to see you. I think we'll, we'll know the answer uh, Wednesday at 8.30, whether in the, mar- the market could extend and elevate above the June highs. And that's where we are right now. We're kind of we're pressing against the ceiling, and we're seeing if we could break out through the ceiling uh, the June highs at 41.77. On an intraday basis, we got above it right. today. We've pulled back a little bit here. You're seeing some weakness on Apple and Amazon and Microsoft. That seems to be the catalyst. But we'll, we'll know on Wednesday uh, if we get the breakout. And if you do get that breakout, you're targeting now the 200-day moving average at 43.36. Uh, that's where, you're, <clears throat> where your next stop is going to be. But I think the downside and Stephen spoke about this, I, I, I see the downside is, is somewhat insulated and protected. Uh, 39.50 is probably your bottom spot. And I'm thinking we're in the month of August. Every day feels like Sunday. And you've just got a market right now that's going to kind of wrestle on either side of 4,100 until the calendar can turn into September. And you're going to get some more visibility towards the direction of Fed policy, of what a higher dollar is doing to earnings, and as we move towards the midterm election. So I think you just kind of have to understand understand rather where we are seasonally uh, in the month of August and don't expect very much. Just to be clear, when you say Wednesday at 8.30, you're talking the CPI number. You believe it's going to have that big of an impact on the markets? Well, it's, it's the potential catalyst that allows you to break above 4177, those June highs, with authority, settle there and establish forward momentum that could take you to the 200-day moving average, or there's some form of general disappointment, uh, which you know aligns, it correlates with the pessimism that's in the market right now. And we begin to see a lot of the recovery action since early July begin to erode away and the market pulls back down towards 39.50. But I don't see us going very far below 39.50. I don't see us going very beyond 40, uh, very well beyond 4,300. So I want to talk about one thing here about the CPI number, because we are going to get big data on Wednesday. But what could happen, and this is where expectations are right now, is that the headline CPI number comes down off of the previous month, but core CPI actually goes up versus Mm. the previous month. So 
We have to really be careful about that. And I think there's a lot of people wanting to call the top in inflation, the peak in inflation, because headline may have seen the peak given the drop in energy prices, given the drop in commodity prices. But remember, what the Fed watches is core. So there could be this big kind of tug of war in the market about, well, headlines coming down, so consumers are going to feel better. There's going to be a, a boost to sentiment. But the Fed is not going to slow down because the measure that they're really paying attention to has not abated. Mr. Wonderful, I hope you don't feel left out. We're going to come over to you. Are you putting that same importance on CPI? And do you believe bear market rally or just a genuine rally on its own? I'm, I'm watching CPI, but I'll tell you what matters more to me. When we revisited the lows recently and then had that remarkable move in July, particularly in tech, where you in basically 11 days got 15 percent back. A great lesson there. You can't time the market. But more importantly, when we were revisiting the lows, there was no narrative at all about a soft landing from the Fed. Zero. In fact, everybody was saying the same thing. The Fed has never engineered successfully a soft landing. Now you listen to that narrative and why we're talking about maybe breaking out on CPI, maybe, or maybe not retesting lows. It's all about the change in narrative about the Fed actually doing their job well. Nobody gives them credit, but they have been jawboning and making moves and watching these earnings, which were much better, not just some better, much better than were anticipated now that we're almost through the season. And that could continue into the back end of this year. The truth is the economy, the consumer economy in the United States has not rolled over yet. I, I see those metrics every week. And now we have drunken sailor spending right back. We've got more <laughs> stimulus, tons of it. Let me give you an example that's actually buoying the market today. There is absolutely no reason on earth to provide incentives to buy electric cars. Zero. The demand is so high that neither company can sustain the output that is based on demand. And yet, we're giving immediate cash stimulus. That is what I call hyperinflationary. So the, the fact that this bill was called anti-inflation is an absolute joke. This is going to be billions of dollars printed, and that in a way is the reason this potential recession has not actually played itself out. There is $6 trillion awash in the economy, and now more free money. This is absolutely fantastic. I think what's going to happen as an investor, which is one other aspect to why you want to go long here, is this will be this administration's last policy ever. The midterms look terrible for them. That happens in every mandate. It doesn't matter what party you are. But in this particular situation, particularly bad. So you could actually see the Senate and the House. And what you get with that, and that's the special bonus the market, I think, is trading on, total gridlock for two years. And that's what you want as an investor. It's time to shut down the printing presses. Wow, Mr. Wonderful, since you and Weiss spoke, I think the S&P is down a quarter of a percent. I don't know if that's a coincidence. I'm not even saying there's a correlation there. But I just want to push back on you, Mr. Wonderful, really quick. You said the Fed's doing its job, or at least they're successful with the job that they're doing. What are you pointing to? S&P 14 percent above its 52-week intraday low from June 17th. The Nasdaq 20 percent from its 52-week uh, low from June 16th. Is that what you're saying is the evidence that the Fed uh, at least is apparently right now succeeding in what it's trying to do? No, that's not what I'm looking at or care about. The Fed is actually managing a soft landing in supposedly what was going to be a hard landing recession. We're at 3.4% unemployment. 
That's incredible. We're creating millions of jobs in the last jobs report. Big surprise for everybody. Now, one of two things is happening. The productivity of those 2 million plus employees is lower than previous because it's not showing up yet in terms of protecting this economy. Maybe they're not working eight hours because they're working from home. And yet 3.4%. I cannot hire anybody in California at the 15% minimum wage. Currently, it's $22 in food services and commercial kitchens and a lot of the support around consumer businesses. So we, I mean, the market right now is on fire. And that's what the Fed is watching. I'm sure they care about the stock market. But at the same time, I don't see recession. Where is it? Show it to me. All right, there we go. Well, you know what, hey, Frank? You know, yeah, go ahead, and Weiss. I mean, Weiss Frank, again. I, again. I, no, I, I think it's. I, I, I think it's a little too early to declare a soft landing or a hard landing. It takes six months minimally for the tightening to filter through the system. So you can't say the Fed's engineering is soft landing, number one. Number two, they didn't beat by lot in earnings. The average earnings beat was 3.4%, which is below the five-year trend of 9%. So, yes, things are coming down. We haven't felt the brunt of it. We will feel the brunt of it. And then we'll take it from there, whether it's soft or hard. But markets trade in direction, and the direction is going to continue to be lower. And look, to say that the consumer is robust is just, just plain wrong. I mean, sure, the 30% of the country doesn't live paycheck to paycheck. They're doing phenomenally well. But the others, not so much. I mean, the math just doesn't work that you spend so much more for food. You spend so much more for gasoline. You spend so much more for rent, for car leases. You know, how does that add up to a consumer not being under siege and not having to pull back particularly when you have all that data coming from Walmart and Target that are in touch with many, many more consumers than anybody on this show. Yeah, Wes, good point so there. So just actually. do the math. That's hey, all I'd Frank, ask. Yeah, good point. Wes, Frank, Frank, good point with inflation. I, I do have to agree with you there. Inflation still is at a 40-year high, even if it eases off the levels on the Wednesday's report. Uh, sorry, Joe, you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I just think it's important, and, and whether it's Liz, Stephen, or, or Kevin uh, that, that want to comment on this, but, but we really haven't spoken about the importance of positioning and sentiment and the impact that it's had here on the recovery since July, and, and really uh, what would be the effect of the current positioning and sentiment if, in fact, inflation came out in a particular direction that was unfavorable, let's say, for the market, and we rolled back over because, you know, you read all the notes all weekend, there's still extreme pessimism. Mm -hmm. You look at positioning with the market and there's still skepticism towards the recovery that we've had since July. Uh, and I think that is really what's going to drive price here as we move past CPI into September, how the market is ultimately going to respond to position and sentiment. That could be the single most critical factor. Yeah, you know, I have to agree with you. A lot of negative sentiment out there. In fact, we were planning to talk about it. We kind of got on some tangents here, but Mike Wilson saying the best part of the rally is over. He believes, similar to what Liz is saying, that valuations are very stretched right now. But uh, as we were just talking right now, the S&P turning negative down very fractionally right now. And just earlier, we were talking about the S&P crossing a key level, potentially actually moving in a different direction right now. Joining us on the phone is Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG Chief Market Technician. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be here.
So we were talking around here before we got on air, and I was kind of kicking it around with Liz a little bit about the S&P testing the resistance level of 41.77. Obviously, right now, we're moving in the negative direction right now. But let's just say, hypothetically, if we can see a rally in the S&P today, it does hit that 41.77 key level. What does that mean about the potential direction? Yeah, so, you know, we always take a weight of the evidence approach more than just looking at any given level, but there are two levels um, that I think are worth highlighting we've been discussing with clients. Uh, the first you mentioned, 4177, that's important because that was the June high, and what we know is that July was actually an inside month, which is fairly unusual, but that all it means is the entirety of July's trading range was inside the high and the low of June's. And so if we were to take out and especially close above June's high of 4177, that would be an indication that, you know, potentially that medium and long-term trend is shifting uh, more in favor of the bulls. But again, we need to see a close above that. But then more importantly for us, and this is the one we've been talking about above that is 4231. And that's because that's the 50% retracement of the entire decline on a closing basis from, um, you know, the, the January high to the June low. And that's important because we went back and looked, and since 1950, we've never seen an, a market that has gone down 20% or more on a closing basis, reclaim 50% of that decline, and then go on to make new cycle lows. So um, a close above 4231, historically speaking, would be pretty significant. Yeah, you know, we have a lot of bullish sentiment, or excuse me, bearish sentiment here on the investment committee today. So in your mind, what you're seeing on the charts right now, what are the chances that we get to that 4231? Do you have a, a time frame of when, if it crosses that resistance level, we'll see an uptrend for the rest of the year? Yeah, I mean, look, we're still we're still a bit cautious here, again, because it's a weight of the evidence approach. So when we look at, um, you know, cross assets and credit spreads and, and a lot of different things, we're, we're still a bit skeptical. But I think if you were to get that close above 4231, it doesn't mean you just flip flip the switch and, and go all in uh, on the long side. I think it just gives you a frame of reference to suggest, okay, maybe the June lows were uh, the, the cycle lows, and you want to get more constructive on pullbacks. Um, but again, I think some of the action we're seeing today is a little bit frothy. We're seeing you know, the most, most shorted names are up 18% over the last five days, um, just some very extreme moves. So I think in the short term, things are a bit frothy. If we were to get a close above 42.31, you could probably say that, uh, you know, over the next uh, three to six weeks, you probably could, could be more constructive on dips. But we're just we're not quite there yet. Yeah, just to be clear, 42.31, just about 2% from where we are right now. So certainly not an incredible leap, but you're saying right now the charts look like it's unlikely in the next three to six weeks? Or do you think it, there's a solid chance? You know, look, it, whenever you're that close, there's a decent chance. Um, but again, I, I want to you know, make it clear it's, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a signal to just flip and, and buy everything. It's just a, a recognition that historically speaking, we would, it would be unlikely that we'd go back and break the lows at that point. All right, Jonathan Krinsky from BTIG. Thanks for the insight. All right, turning our attention to the Inflation Reduction Act that's making its way to the House, where it is expected to pass, in addition to spending hundreds of billions of dollars on climate and health care programs. The bill also includes a new 15% corporate minimum tax and a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks. Jim, Crater, Jim Cramer noted in his Investment Club letter earlier today, here's what he's saying, the Inflation Reduction Act is really a tax on companies and shareholders, but less than is needed to cover new spending that the Democrats have been begging for all these years. The bill will most likely cause the S&P to fall. A very dire uh, forecast there from Jim Cramer. Joe, I'm going to come back over to you. What's your take on this bill, and what do you think it really means for companies, especially some of those companies that a lot of people consider buyback monsters? 
Well, first of all, um, there was the expectation that uh, share buybacks would increase 12% in 2022 uh, trillion dollars, and that would be a historic year. I think the potential, and I think this is a positive potential for 2022, is to get ahead of the January 1st, 2023 uh, uh, tax that's going to be put in place on uh, share buybacks. You're going to see a lot of companies that will pull forward buyback intentions from the future before the calendar year expires. So that's a potential catalyst for the market here in the near term. And it potentially creates a scenario where it somewhat buffers a lot of downside uh, volatility and price within the market. And it almost creates a scenario which, speaking to what Jonathan was just talking about, where for the better part of 2022, we heard what, Frank? Sell the rips. Well, now maybe we look at the market, we say to ourselves, we go back to buying the dips. And a lot of that is going to be because you're going to see buyback intentions pulled forward into this calendar year. All right, we're going to turn our attention to one of the big stock Frank, stories. Hey, yeah, go ahead. Can, can I, let me just say this. So I agree with Joe, you may see some acceleration, but let's put some numbers to it. Mm-hmm. So if a company announces a $300 million buyback, they've got to pay 1% tax, they'll just announce a 297 buyback. It's really meaningless in the total scheme of things. If they announce a billion-dollar buyback, chances are they're not going to do it over one year. They'll do it over multiple years. And some companies never buy back all the stock they announce. So I just don't think it's that significant. I don't really think it impacts much behavior, although on the margin you'll see some more buybacks this year before it takes back. Wait, wait, so you think it's going to impact any behavior? Because the tax wouldn't kick in until January 1st of next year. You don't think that some companies may say, hey, let's do some buybacks before the tax kicks in. It may actually spark a rally of buybacks. On the margin, I think that's true. But I don't think you'll see a torrent of it uh, coming this year because 1% is just meaningless. They'll just buy back less stock next year and pay the 1% tax. They'll figure it into it. Or... They'll announce their buyback instead of doing 300. They'll do, you know, they'll say, okay, it's going to cost us 303. It's not that big a deal. All right. Well, we want to turn our attention to one of the big stock stories of the day. Shares of NVIDIA plunging after warning about its second quarter revenue. Kevin, over to you. You actually just bought some NVIDIA shares. Yes, I did. Uh, Let's talk about the miss. Um, I've been starting to build up a portfolio of semis uh, that some of them are obviously trading at big discounts. NVIDIA is a leading name in this space but here's the perspective i'm taping uh, i'm taking on this i'm involved now in the data center business Uh, these are very large facilities all around the world they cost 200 to 600 million to build primarily sovereign wealth and private uh, equity that builds them Um, there's a supply chain problem and nvidia admitted it today it's not that the demand wasn't there for these semiconductors. They couldn't actually get them to where they needed to sell them on time. Now, that's not the whole excuse. It's part of it, though. But if I look over the next three to four years in just the projects I'm involved in, in terms of building out in North Dakota and northern Norway, uh, North Carolina, there, there's some really massive projects coming into play. And our biggest concern is semiconductors. So. 
you know, and then I think about all the data center requirements for the automotive industry with the free cash they're getting. All of those EVs require data centers. Taxes, what's happened there? And this is all going to play in NVIDIA's strength. When Russian tanks rolled over Ukrainian data centers that were supported by their really good hydroelectricity there, for the first time ever, states and sovereign countries start saying, where's my data? There's no such thing as the cloud anymore. I want to know where the facility is, where my data is stored. And, and all of a sudden, every state's looking at building out. So this is a big play for semis, big play for semiconductors. I may not get the bottom here, but I'm starting to build on my position at a 9% discount this morning. All right, Joe, we're going to give you last word on this before we head to break. Yeah, I, I was a buyer of NVIDIA earlier in July, so obviously I'm in a good price point. I completely agree with what Kevin just stated. I still view NVIDIA as one of the best in breed semiconductors, uh, and I'm not surprised by what we heard today. We knew gaming was going to be weak, and I like that they've actually come out and now set a lower expectation. All right, there we go. All right, straight ahead, the state of software as Palantir shares fall. After an unexpected quarterly loss, the committee debates that space halftime report. Coming right back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Shares of Palantir sinking down about 12% right now. The company reported an EPS miss, also issued some weak guidance. I spoke with CFO David Glazer. He said the lumpiness of government work, where Palantir gets about 80% of revenue, makes forecasting difficult, but they do believe they have a strong pipeline. The other headline from the quarter outside of that guidance, U.S. growth and U.S. commercial growth, COVID and supply chain disruptions are a catalyst for increased commercial interest, according to the CFO. Uh, I want to turn this over to you, Mr. Wonderful. I know you've been eyeing Palantir, but you haven't pulled the trigger just yet. Is this report going to uh, is it going to make you go ahead and buy or is it something that's going to make you hold back? You know, I made this uh, one of my picks for the CNBC stock draft a long time ago because of the premise of enterprise and particularly their strength with lobbyists in Washington. They're everywhere. You go to Washington, D.C., these guys own the town. And so their technology is particularly friendly. I don't care what side, if you're a red state, blue state, or what side of the aisle you serve. I think the government's very comfortable with their platform and the security it provides. And so I think that relationship's locked in. Now, in, some, in terms of getting in a, a, a better place to forecast and why I didn't buy it today, I, I actually think it's going to see some more downside. And um, 
my thoughts are there's going to be a lot of volatility until midnight or past midnight on November 8th. If what I think is going to happen, and I'm, I want to be bipartisan when I say this, I'm just looking back at history. Every incumbent loses seats in the House, but in this case, maybe the Senate as well. Uh, and all of a sudden, the government flips to more of a red state vibe. You want to be long this company. So my thinking is to, to buy into the midterms, uh, Republican lobbyists, Republican states like this technology, and they will probably uh, give more visibility to this company's upside in the back end of the year. So it's just a timing thing for me. It's like 78% government. So you're, when you're buying this, you're partnering with the government. And right now, the government is very, very partisan. You saw that vote over the weekend. They don't like each other. And uh, I, I, might, I will say one thing, closing on this, and why I feel better about this name. I went to the convention last week in Denver of the states, the National Convention of State Legislators, Lo and behold, they're bipartisan. They even like each other. They get a lot of stuff done. <laughs> I'm going to start working more with the states, I think, than the federal government. That's the way I'm feeling right now. There you go. Uh, it sounds like it's a lot different up in Canada than it is down here. Um, Liz, I'm going to come over to you. Uh, we're not going to talk Palantir, but just the, the broader SaaS environment. Palantir is a bit of a niche business. As Mr. Wonderful mentioned, 80% of their business is government contracts, but the other 20% is commercial business. And that grew, it, it more than doubled uh, this quarter year over year. Are you feeling very, I don't know, bullish or instructive on the SaaS space? I mean, software overall is something that I've been talking about for the year as buying themes on sale. And I do think for a long-term perspective, number one, the world has changed and there are a lot of companies that have invested a great deal in software and they're going to continue doing so. As the labor market remains this tight and companies aren't able to find the bodies to actually produce work, they have to invest more in technology. So I am constructive on software for the long term, even for the short to medium term. So I think if, some, if you see dips in some of these names, I think they're actually buying opportunities. Yeah, important to note, WCLD cloud computing ETF up 2% today. Palantir on that soft guidance down double digits. All right, let's get to our headlines with Seema Modi. Hey there, Seema. Good afternoon, Frank. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. Three men already serving life sentences on state murder charges for killing the 25-year-old Ahmed Arbery are hearing their federal hate crime sentences today. Travis McMichael, the 36-year-old man who fatally shot Arbery, was the first to be sentenced. He received life plus 10 years. The judge rejected the defense's request that he serve the time in a federal prison. China announcing it will be extending military drills around Taiwan a day after the scheduled end of its largest ever exercise. It's retaliation for last week's controversial visit to Taipei by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Taiwan's foreign ministry condemning China's decision to continue the drill, saying Beijing is still deliberately creating a crisis. And Kyiv warning Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear complex has a risk of a Chernobyl-style catastrophe. The United Nations chief is demanding that nuclear inspectors are given access to the plant as Kyiv and Moscow trade blame for shelling. Kyiv is also calling for the area to be demilitarized. Frank, that's it for now. Back to you. All right, Seema, thank you very much. Our Seema Modi. Uh, still ahead on halftime, the big ETFs to watch today. Plus, has crypto found a floor? And as we check to go to break, a quick check on the market. Stocks are near their lows of the day. The Dow up very fractionally right now, up about four points, believe it or not, very fractionally. The S&P down fractionally as well, about down about half a percent from where it was when we actually started the show. The Nasdaq also down fractionally. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number 
and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Bitcoin down almost 50% this year, and a Bitcoin ETF may still be way on the back burner. But several new crypto ETFs have just launched. Horizon Kinetics launched the blockchain development ETF last week. That's an actively managed fund that invests in companies that benefit from digital assets. And on Thursday, Charles Schwab launched the Schwab crypto thematic ETF that tracks an index of global exposure to companies that may benefit from the development of cryptocurrencies. So why now with Bitcoin down 50% on the year? Let's talk with David Botset. He's the managing director and head of equity product management and innovation at Schwab Asset Management. David, uh, Bitcoin's up today, I see, but it's lost two thirds of its value really since November, 2021. Why now with a, a cryptocurrency fund? You know, Bob, for us, it's not about timing the market with a product launch like this. It's really taking the insights that we gain from investors as to what they are looking for and exposures in their portfolio of the long term. And we then take that, combine it with our expertise and our scale, and look to bring a product to market that we think is going to survive in the long term and really deliver on its long-term objective, which is what we've done in this case. Still, I, I look at the, what's on this fund, what's in this fund. I see a lot of names very closely associated with crypto. I see MicroStrategy, I see Marathon Digital, I see Riot Blockchain, I see Coinbase. Can you tell us how you distinguish yourself from other funds? And, and I, I note last week BlackRock announced it was teaming with Coinbase to offer Bitcoin to institutional clients. Does that mean anything? Are, are we seeing any broader acceptance of, of crypto? Well, I, I think first on, on that last question, we, we are starting to see a bit more broader acceptance of, of crypto and digital assets. But as we look at our product and the differentiation in the space, we really look at two items. One is our continued focus on reducing the cost for exposures for investors' portfolios. We did that again here with this product by launching the lowest cost product in the space at 30 basis points. The second is looking beyond those top holdings. I think in the marketplace, there's a broad acceptance as to who the biggest players are with cryptocurrencies and digital assets. But once you get outside of that top 10 space, you start to see the smaller players. That's where we've used a strong combination of human insight to identify the theme and a combination of AI and systematic models to assess companies based upon their thematic exposure to cryptocurrencies and digital assets. So you see names like NCR Corp or Stonex that are lower in that portfolio position but still have significant exposure to the theme overall. And that really sets the product apart relative to others in the space. All right, we're going to have a lot more on Schwab's new Bitcoin ETF coming up. That's on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Plus, we'll be talking about buffered ETFs. This is a hot product right now. They provide some degree of protection to a particular stock or index. They're having a big moment right now. So last week, Innovator launched the Innovator Hedge Tesla strategy. This seeks to track the upside performance of Tesla to a cap, but maximum quarterly losses are also available for that. You want to learn more about how these buffered ETF works? Uh, ETFs work. Innovator Capital Management CEO Bruce Bond is going to join me 1 p.m. Eastern time. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime. Back right after this. 
And welcome back to Halftime. Clean energy stocks on the move today. Pippa Stevens is tracking them. Hey, Pippa. Hey, Frank. Off the highs of the day, but we are seeing moves across the clean energy space after the Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act. The bill includes $369 billion for energy and climate initiatives, making it the largest climate package in U.S. history. A lot of companies stand to benefit, and we are seeing those stocks respond. On the solar side, names like Sunrun, Sonova, and First Solar all in the green. Array Technologies, which makes tracking systems for utility-scale solar, also advancing here. Now, the IRA includes credits for standalone battery storage, which is lifting players like Fluence Energy and STEM. Meantime, hydrogen names, Plug Power and Fuel Cell Energy, also getting a boost. Now, the long-term nature of these credits is key. As Wells Fargo put it, this is not incremental legislation. It's a game-changer in terms of accelerating clean energy, as well as jump-starting the green hydrogen industry. Frank? All right. Thanks a lot, Pip. A big day for clean energy stocks. And speaking of clean energy, this is a big month for EV makers. Our Phil Abo is here with much more on that. Hey, Phil. Hey, Frank, and a big day for the EV stocks. The pure EV plays are all up anywhere between 5 and 8%. Even the uh, legacy automakers, GM and Ford, they're getting a nice 2 or 3% pop. One automaker that is not getting a pop today, Toyota in part because of this uh, new bill. doesn't really do a whole lot to help them. But in terms of manufacturing, especially here in the United States, we are seeing the beginning of a run that we're going to see over the next 12 to 18 months where we see new models coming out of U.S. plants and battery manufacturing. You got the ID4 from Volkswagen in Tennessee started a couple of weeks ago, the Mercedes EQS in Alabama, and then you've got Ultium Batteries that's coming from the uh, Ohio plant that is owned by GM and LG Chem. So all of that together, along with the wave of new models that will start rolling out soon, what you're looking at is about 5.4% of the market, according to LMC Automotive. That's how many this year will be EVs. It's going to grow by 2025 to an estimated 13.5%, according to LMC Automotive. Let's take a look at some of the important stocks to watch here. You've got Tesla. Tesla may be in the driver's seat here because it's got the most capacity. And as it ramps up manufacturing, it's got the Fremont plant in California, the largest EV producer in the country. They've got the Gigafactory in Austin coming online. But also take a look at the big three, GM, Ford, and Stellantis. They are pumping $110 billion into EV and AV. EV production over the next several years. They've already spent a lot of that. More to come through 2026. They will certainly benefit as their production comes online. And then finally, take a look at shares of Rivian. Rivian reports its Q2 results after the bell on Thursday. And the big question is, do they say, yep, we're going to hit our 25,000 EV manufacturing guidance? And if there's no change there, and by the way, if they do a slight increase, you could see the shares get a bit of a pop on Thursday. Guys, back to you. All right. Thanks a lot, Phil. Phil LeBeau. All right, Kevin, over to you. You own shares of both Tesla and GM. Um, I know you're a little bit critical uh, of the Inflation Reduction Act, but are you positive when it comes to those two stocks? Uh, I also own Ford. I'm, I'm very positive on the fact that all of this uh, is going to stimulate those stocks. There's no question about it. All of those companies have EV initiatives and mandates. But it, it really does point out how blunt an instrument a bill like this is, how inefficient and wasteful it can be. Try and get a plaid out of Tesla right now. There's premiums being traded amongst people who are on the waiting list 
and now we're giving them free cash? I mean, that's just plain dumb and a really wasteful use of taxpayers' dollars. So anytime I get a chance to criticize this bill, I do, because it is bad policy. And particularly as a shareholder, yes, I'm benefiting. Yes, I'm up 4 or 5% across the board on these names. But what a waste of money, just a plain waste. I feel bad. I'm going to go to a funeral on Tuesday for all that money that died. This is just really dumb to do. <laughs> Well, OK, that, that's that's quite the take for Monday, Mr. Mr. Wonderful. Glad we brought some sunshine to the show. All right. Coming up, stocks giving up their gains this hour. Mike Santoli's midday word. I'm thinking it's going to be a bit more positive. That's coming up next. And welcome back to halftime. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now from the NYSE with his midday word. Hey, Mike. Hey, Frank, pretty eventful morning. Uh, the big indexes really just sort of came off the boil almost right where you might expect the S&P peaks above this level. We've all been watching the early June highs and, and backs off a little bit. It looked a little bit grabby in the morning. Short covering, definitely a feature of this market the last couple of weeks. The meme stock's getting going. So it seems as if it's a wait and see. Let's just use perhaps some of the cushion that's been built up since the mid-June lows uh, to you know absorb whatever uh, pullbacks we have. The bears still think this is going to be a good selling opportunity. Obviously, Wednesday's CPI will give us a better read on that. One other thing I would flag, Apple raced right up to a three month or so high uh, and then just sort of backed right down on the 167 level. So it's all kind of moving in sync. Uh, but it seems to me that's the dynamic. Tried the upside and uh, didn't really find too many buyers above the recent resistance just yet anyway. All right. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli, we appreciate your midday word. Joe, you're watching the markets right now, obviously moving lower as we've been doing the show. The S&P down about a quarter percent from where we started. You believe that energy is one of the reasons for the moves to the downside? Well, let, let, let's keep in mind how the algorithms work during the course of the day. And for the better part of the last several weeks, what we've witnessed is when the price of oil went down, energy equities were sold off and capital went into technology, went into consumer discretionary, went into the growth strategy, and it was risk on. So earlier today, you had the price of oil uh, testing somewhere between 87 and $88 as we progressed throughout the morning. You saw oil futures begin to rally. They moved above $90 at one point. This is not me claiming that oil is going to go in a particular direction. It's just be aware how the algorithms are set. If oil is going to rally, you're going to see that equities themselves, a risk-off mentality, uh, is going to be exercised in the market. Yeah, oil up uh, a percent or more right now despite recession concerns and concerns about slowdowns in China. All right, crypto is seeing big gains today and a call out on the street saying crypto markets, they've actually found a floor. The committee debates it. That's coming up next on Halftime. And welcome back to Halftime. We're going to talk a little crypto. Ether hitting its highest level in almost two months. JP Morgan out with a note saying crypto markets have found a floor. It's our call of the day. Kevin, over to you. You recently sold Coinbase. I did, I did sell Coinbase, and I bought a similar uh, structure up in Canada called WonderFi because that's a regulator. They have 700,000 accounts in every province, but they are overseen by the regulator. My new thesis about this space is I'm only going where there's regulation. I don't want any of my holdings to be at war with their regulator and their geography. Looking in England, looking in the United Arab Emirates, I also own a piece of immutable holdings. It's a company out of Puerto Rico, but it trades in Canada because the regulator is compliant there with them. The whole thing, though, is none of this is going to work 
until we get policy. So we're not going to, we're going to send Bitcoin is going to be stuck between 20 to 23,000. At scale, you can mine it at $7,000. So it's very profitable to do that, but it's never going to break out until we get policy. And until we get some jurisdictional direction on who owns this stuff, is it the SEC or the other regulators? It's a turf war going on right now. There is policy coming in September. Hopefully a bill will be shown that will be voted on on a bipartisan basis for stable coin. And that would be tied to the U.S. dollar as a payment system. You want to favor Circle for that. It's a private company. I am a shareholder in that, so I want to disclose it. But so is BlackRock and so is Fidelity. $54 billion of AUM there. I'm hoping for policy there to kick it off and then pass the midterms, get some more policy on crypto going. Yeah, you're talking about direction. I mean, you're looking at just this, this quarter alone, Ether up 74 percent, Bitcoin up 27 percent almost, uh, Solana up more than 30 percent. Weiss, what's your take on crypto right now? Do you think we actually found the floor? You know, you know it, I, it's it's a little like uh, OJ still searching for uh, for his wife's killer. I think a lot of people still searching for the 40 $40,000 in that store of value that's disappeared, it's the same thing. There's no there there. The uh, crypto just has no utility. You don't need crypto for blockchain. Blockchain's been around for a long time, actually. IBM's had it for a long chain for a long time. I think that it may trade higher, it may trade lower. It's an asset class, but there's no intrinsic mm -hmm. value beneath what you see trading in front of you. And the regulators know this. That's why they're coming hard for it. So I wouldn't be in crypto. I'd be a seller of crypto. And if I miss it, I miss it. But guess what? I like buying things that have some value that back up the price that I see in the screen. You know, Liz, I was about to go to you for hopefully a slightly less morbid analogy, but I'm just going to move on. Final <laughs> well, trades. I, I actually have a question real quick for Kevin. So if, if a lot of it hinges on regulation, there's this thesis that regulation legitimatizes the industry. If and when we get past that regulation hurdle in the U.S., would you be buying crypto directly? Would you buy the actual coins? Or would you then be comfortable with some of the platforms like a Coinbase and other companies that are so heavily involved in crypto in the U.S.? And Mr. Wonderful, well, if you don't mind, quick answer. Yeah, yeah. Coinbase is infrastructure. You want to own both, but you need regulation. Bottom line is sovereign wealth does not touch crypto right now. Steve pointed that out. They would like to allocate one to three percent. And if you're running nine hundred billion dollars, that's serious money. They've not touched it yet. I'm trying to get ahead of that. I own 32 positions. I believe in regulation. I believe it's coming. I think you'll see it in Q1 next year. All right, there we go. Final trades coming up next on Halftime. We ended on a slightly lighter note. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Time for final trades. Liz Young, let's start with you. I am using communications today. It hasn't come back as much in this rally as some of the other stocks, meaning there wasn't as much multiple expansion. So I think that there could be a nice rally if we see bullish sentiment through the end of the year. Why are you sure next up? Take it easy. <laughs> uh, Ford, look, the bill, the inflation reduction bill, is not allowing credits for cars that cost over 55,000 or trucks over 80. So most if you know if Tesla's cars actually don't apply for the credit. So but you know what does Ford, Ford's trucks and Ford's cars. So I think Ford's going to be one of the primary beneficiaries of this. Mr. Wonderful. NVIDIA went on sale. They missed on gaming. But the, what they make is going to be demand in all 11 sectors of the economy, either data centers or semis. I think that's a trend that's going to stick for years to come. Joe T, last word. Still long Uber. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. 
You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.